That's Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. So the uh, title that uh, Tom chose for today, taken from the reading in verse 14, how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And these words were addressed by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And the words could apply to anyone and everyone. How can anyone believe in something they haven't heard about? But uh, Paul, this uh, religious Jew, this frummer, this Pharisee, former Pharisee, was referring to his people, Israel, and addressing their unbelief. And addressing specifically their unbelief because they had not heard the gospel about their Messiah. Uh, when you think of Israel, you may think of a land with this rather popular picture of the Islamic Dome of the Rock above the Wailing or the Western Wall where the Temple of Jerusalem once stood. Now Israel is a land. In the days of Joshua, like this map around 1200 BC, the 12 tribes settled in the land both on the west side of the Jordan and partly on the east side, the land the Lord gave to Israel. And the New Testament also calls this land Israel. In Matthew chapter 2, we read, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. And how hard I think it is even for Christians today to name this land the land of Israel. This picture uh, juxtaposes um, Israel over northern France, 
apologies to the Brexiteers, but this was done when we were living in France. But it gives a good idea of the size of Israel in relation to France, a very small country. And the larger red part in the Bible, it's called Judea Samaria, often referred to today as the West Bank or occupied territories. And again, a picture which shows Israel in the context of the surrounding Arab Muslim countries. And now, today, Hamas is seeking the elimination of Jews from the land of Israel. When three to 400,000 people chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They're perhaps unwittingly, but all the same, calling for a land which will be eradicated of all Jews. The introduction of the Hamas Charter states, in the name of Allah, the all-merciful, Israel will exist until Islam exterminates it. Jihad for the liberation of Palestine is a right, a duty, and an honor for all the children of our people. And now the Houthis in Yemen are much in the news, and their slogan is Allah is great, death to America, death to Israel, damnation to the Jews, victory to Islam. In Genesis chapter 25, we read, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So who is speaking and to whom? It's God speaking to Rebecca. And who is God speaking about? Esau and Jacob, the twins, the sons of Isaac. And who do the two nations represent? The Edomites and Israel. This is actually the first mention of Israel in the Bible. And it's not the name attached first and foremost to a land, but to a person. It's a special name that God gave to Jacob. And further into the Bible, we read of the descendants of this man, Israel. The tribes of Israel, the kings of Israel, the children of Israel, the prophets of Israel. Hundreds of time references in the Bible to a people. Israel is a land, the land of the people, but first and foremost, it is the name of a people, descendant from one man, Jacob, scattered around the world at the time of Christ and scattered around the world today as well. Here you've got a little chart which shows the world Jewish population. Roughly 14 million people most in Israel and the States, but you'll see also many in France and the French-speaking world, and 300,000 in Britain, mainly in the North London area, and now in leafy Hertfordshire. So what does this book of Romans tell us about our role as Christians to the Jewish people? 
Well, Paul is not addressing issues about the land of Israel, but he is addressing issues about the people of Israel. What does he teach us? And I'd like to raise four points. The first is that we are to pray for the Jewish people. And we're to pray specifically for their salvation. Remember the words of Jesus, what does it gain a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? And Paul is focusing on our uh, spiritual needs. And in verse 1, which was read last week, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. There is much prayer for the peace of Jerusalem, much prayer for political peace, and these are good, but the only ultimate hope for a lasting peace is through the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Deborah, my wife, one of the steps to her coming to believe in Jesus was a Christmas card sent by some Christian friend with the words from Isaiah, unto us a son is born, a child is given, and one of his names would be the Prince of Peace. And Deborah, like many people looking for peace, found peace through her Messiah. May we in the church pray for the salvation of Jewish people. May we pray for the salvation of all people because it profits no one to gain the world if he loses his soul. Christ came into my life, uh, as I said, at the third year in university. I then found out that uh, the Christian friend who was a a newborn Christian, in fact, when I met him, we were playing sports, he said two things to me which really struck me. The first thing he said was that he knew God personally, and I thought, what a chutzpah, you know, what a cheek to say, I know God personally, to believe in God maybe, but to know God, and it pricked up my curiosity, and then he said, I've been a Christian for a year, and I said to Jeff, well, I've been a Jew all my life, so what were you for the first 19 years of your life. And it was his opportunity to say that we are not born Christians, we have to be born again. But I learned that Jeff had committed with his sister and his parents, a lovely Christian family, to pray for my salvation every day, which they did for two years. So Paul says, brothers and sister, my heart's desire my prayer to God for the Jews is that they may be saved. And he, the apostle to the Gentiles, speaking to a largely Gentile church, is urging them to pray for the Jewish people. The second thing he is asking is that we are to love Israel, to love the Jewish people. Let's look back in the Old Testament to see how God demonstrates his love for the Jewish people, for Israel. This is what God has to say through Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, taken from Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says, he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, 
who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. God's love is eternal. And secondly, God's love is unconditional. In the following verse we read, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, by their actions, just like by our actions, they and us deserve God's rejection. Yet God's love is unconditional, it is un, uh, unwavering, and it is eternal. And also, as we'll read, it is irrevocable. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, a reading from next week, God's gift and his call are irrevocable. And that is how we are to love Israel as God loves us and he gave his life for us. But there is more. We know that Jesus issued a new command. He said, a new command I give you. My little quiz question, what is that new command? It's probably so obvious you're embarrassed to say. So let me prompt you. Jesus said, love one another. But of course, that wasn't the new command. In the Old Testament, God commands Israel to love him with all their hearts and soul and strength. And the second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Recited in the synagogue to this day, every day. The new command wasn't love one another. It was what follows. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a to die for love. Not in the sense of loving your favorite chocolate, but a love so strong you are prepared to die to save others from hell. The sacrificial love of Christ, as expressed by Paul and uh, quoted earlier in the service in the book of Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are to have this to die for love for others. Paul had it for his own people. The apostle to the Gentiles said about his own people, the Jewish people, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish myself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's saying effectively, I'd be prepared to go to hell if it could bring my people to heaven. He was willing to die for his people. The love of Christ demonstrated by his death for our sins, by his resurrection. One of my favorite paintings which uh, illustrates the compassion of Christ for his own people wonderfully expressed by the Jewish artist Mark Chagall 
in this painting called The White Crucifixion. It depicts Jesus wearing a prayer shawl, a talit, suffering as a Jew, watching on to the persecution of his fellow Jews on the one side by the Red Army, on the other side by the Nazis and by pogroms. And this painting, I think, prophetically was painted in 1938, just before the Second World War. But sadly, Jewish people in general don't associate Christianity, at least historical Christianity, with the compassion of Christ, but rather with persecution by Christians. We lived near Geneva, and the longest-serving rabbi there, Rabbi Garai, when interviewed for a, a magazine, the official Protestant church magazine about the Holocaust, and yesterday was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, he stated, the executioners were Christians or the products of centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. I don't know if any of you recognize this sculpture. Put, put your hands up if you know, know this. So one or two of you. It's uh, called the Judensau, German for the Jewish sow, the Jewish female pig. And it's a sculpture which is standing to this day on the main church in Wittenberg. It dates from the early 14th century, and it shows the rabbi lifting up the tail of the sow and sniffing, and other members of the synagogue sucking the teats of the sow. And of course, the pig was not kosher. Jews cannot touch pigs, eat pork. This was a sculpture to mock and deride the Jews. From the early 14th century, 200 years later, Martin Luther nailed his theses, 95 theses, to the same church door, and there began the Reformation. And towards the end of Luther's lives, he said this about the Jewish people. He wrote a book. We say a pamphlet, but it's over 100 pages, entitled The Jews and Their Lies. And in it he wrote, What should we do with the Jews, this cursed and perfidious race? Burn their synagogues, destroy their homes, forbid their prayer books and Talmud, forbid their rabbis from teaching at risk of death. Passports must be forgiven. They must cease practicing usury. In conclusion, dear princes and nobles to whom he addressed the book, having Jews on your lands, if this advice doesn't suit you, find a better solution to rid us of this frightful demonic burden, the Jews. So we are to pray for the Jewish people. We are to love them, even those who are not lovable. We are, thirdly, to speak to them. And that's what I want to focus on. Paul, in this chapter 10, is exhorting the Christians in Rome to speak and to share the gospel to the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people, by and large today, have not heard the gospel. There's a newspaper in Israel which is called Haaretz, which is the equivalent to The Guardian, so a left-leaning newspaper. And this article appeared some time ago. 
And the heading was, it's time for Israelis to learn Jesus was Jewish. And the journalist wrote, students hear about Jesus at best only once during 12 years of schooling and only in passing. History lecturers at universities in Israel say students are totally ignorant about everything concerning Jesus and Christianity. They live two meters away from places that many Christians dream of visiting and they know nothing about them. They're ignorant because the schools are still afraid that any study of Jesus is connected to missionary activity. And uh, an opinion poll conducted publicly in Israel about the same time asked Israelis what they thought about Jesus. And the conclusions were this. Firstly, Jesus started a new religion. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I've come not to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. 95% of Israelis interviewed were unaware that the resurrection of Jesus was the central tenet of the Christian faith. Again, 95 of Israelis polled were unaware that the Hebrew or Jewish name for Jesus is Yeshua, which means God's salvation. They think it is Yeshu, which unbeknown to most Israelis, is an acronym which stands for the words, may his name and memory be blotted out forever. This is what the rabbis called Jesus, Yeshua. They called him Yeshu right from the Middle Ages in response to Christian persecution. So our role as Christians is very much to share the good news of Jesus, to speak the gospel. Right in the introduction to the gospel, Paul declares in Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The very fact he raises the word shame is because for many of us, we struggle to speak about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. This truth, which is as relevant and valid today as it was when Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. And then a few verses later in Romans chapter 10, the passage that was read, how then can they, the Jewish people, call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them. And the word preaching is not standing up on a pulpit, but simply sharing the good news about Jesus. And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of the Messiah. And I find it astounding that even in Paul's day, he seems to be rebuking the Christians in Rome, exhorting them to share the gospel with Jewish people. It's like the Christians in Rome had lost sight of the fact that church was founded by Jews at Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot in Jerusalem some years beforehand. The church in Rome was probably also founded by Jews 
who received the gift of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, at Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2. Jews who were later expelled from Rome under the Emperor Claudius, and now the church in Rome is made up essentially of Gentiles who've forgotten that God still desires the salvation of his people Israel. And you may find it surprising that Paul should write that they can't believe in the one of whom they haven't heard. You may think, well, all Jewish people have heard of Jesus. And of course, we've all heard about Jesus. But which Jesus? Is it the one nailed to the cross for which death we have been accused over the centuries of being the Christ killers? Or is it the baby Jesus rolled out once a year and placed in a crib next to the Christmas tree? So these Jesuses are well known, but Jewish people by and large do not know the Jesus who died for their sin, who rose for, from the dead according to the scriptures. And those scriptures which Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15 those scriptures are the Old Testament, prophesying that the Messiah would die for our sin and rise from the dead. I was a very, very secular Jew. My identity as a Jew was linked with the Holocaust, with suffering, not at all with God. There was no mention of God at all in our family. I was educated at prep schools and public schools in England, nominally Anglican schools, Christian schools. But although I heard the facts of life for the first time at prep school, I never heard the facts of new life until I got to university. It was only at the age of 18, removed from my Anglican Christian setting in a secular university, that for the first time I heard the gospel. And that was when Jeff and his family prayed for my salvation every day for two years. Later, I met Deborah, who's from what I would call a traditional uh, London Jewish family, going to shul synagogue for the high holy days, doing Shabbat Friday evening at home, but it's mainly a family gathering and food. And we met when we were both in our late 20s in London. And she was a brand new believer in Jesus. And I asked her to tell me how she came to believe. And in short, she came to believe through her sister, her, uh, her older sister Lizzie, who in turn had come to believe in Jesus when she was a student in Jerusalem. And a Christian had given her a New Testament, shared his faith in Christ. And when Deborah came to believe in Jesus, I said, so what happened? She said, well, the first thing that happened when I knew Jesus was alive, that he was the Messiah, was that I burst out laughing. And she explained that the laughter was the joy of God's presence by his spirit in her heart. And the first thing that she then said was, why did I have to wait 26 years before someone told me the gospel, the good news of Jesus. How can Jewish people believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? How can anyone 
believe in the one of whom they haven't heard. We quoted this morning the verses where Jesus encourages us to pray that God raises up laborers for the harvest. I don't know if you, I, I used to be an accountant, so I'm interested in statistics. And uh, I noticed that in Gaza, there are 2.3 million Muslims. How many Christians in Gaza? How many evangelical Christians? Wikipedia talks of 2,000 Roman Catholic Orthodox Christians. I haven't heard of a single evangelical church in Gaza. So we could say, okay, 99% of Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. But I would say that probably 99% of residents in Gaza don't believe in Jesus. We as a church pray that God raises up laborers for the harvest. Pray for the salvation of Jews. Pray for the salvation of these Muslims in Gaza, in the West Bank, these Arab Palestinians. The labor, laborers are few, Jesus reminds us. The harvest is very, very plentiful. So the three points I've raised so far, we are to pray for Jewish people, we are to love them, we are to share our faith in Jesus with them, and the fourth point I'd like to raise very briefly is that we are to be people of hope, to have hope. This is taking, uh, taking some of the thunder from next week when Tom preaches on it, but I'd just like to share these verses from Romans 11. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. That was his hope in the present, that some Jewish people like himself and the thousands who came to believe in Jesus in Jerusalem, Pentecost, would come to believe in Jesus but he had a greater hope for the future. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11, did, again, he, he says, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then in verse 15, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul speaks of a future hope for Israel, that this people who largely in his day, and I would say again today, do not follow Yeshua as Messiah, there will be a revival when Jewish people will turn en masse to believe in their Messiah. I'd like to uh, finish with a couple of stories. Um, this picture of two uh, dear friends of mine. One is a, a rabbi, the other is a pastor. And just to uh, see if you have a sense of uh, who, who's Jewish and who's not, I'm going to... Uh, ask you to tell me which you think is the rabbi and which is the pastor. So if you think the, uh, 
Uh, pastor is on the left. Raise your hand. And if you think that the rabbi is on the left, raise your hand. And if you have not raised your hand, raise your hand. <laughs> right, well, most of you are right. So the rabbi is on the left. Um, a wonderful friend who was a, a rabbi of uh, an Orthodox synagogue near Zurich. And uh, the other friend is a pastor from a brethren church in Zurich who was very keen to meet Rabbi, my rabbi friend, and uh, visit the uh, shul, the congregation. So we arranged for a visit one Saturday morning, and uh, my friend Stefan was the first turning up at the shul uh, early in the morning because as a good Christian, he thought we should arrive just before the service starts, but the Shul, the synagogue service on a Saturday morning of Shabbat is so long that most people arrive towards the end. Uh, so he was the first there, and uh, Rabbi Aaron was shocked to see what he thought was a fellow rabbi who he'd never met before. And uh, I love the photo because the two of them are dressed virtually identically. Um, but when uh, Aaron was, uh, was rabbi in Switzerland, we used to meet to read through John's gospel. He then uh, left to go back to Israel, and since then we've started reading the gospel of Mark together over Zoom once, once a week. Uh, and so do pray for, for him. And dear friends, um, in Switzerland, uh, two Israeli families, uh, Tony and Yael on the left, and uh, they came to uh, hear me speak uh, on Isaiah chapter 53. So I quote one verse on the slide where it speaks of the servant of the Lord and God says through Isaiah he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And uh, after hearing the message Yael and Tony were fairly troubled, but they spoke to their rabbi, Lubavitch rabbi, who said, no, the, uh, those who have pierced for our transgressions are the Jews who suffered in the Holocaust. And that is very common interpretation today. My other friend, uh, who I call Jacob in our, in our newsletter, refused to come into church, but he read the passage in our home in Hebrew, and he burst out laughing. And I said, why are you laughing, Jacob? And he said, because this can only speak about Jesus, about Yeshua. And he said, but I don't believe because I don't believe in the Bible. So one couple believe in the Bible, but don't believe it's Jesus. The other, who had a very religious upbringing, training to be a rabbi, rejected God because of the suffering in the world. And he laughed when he read this passage saying it can only be about Jesus if it is true. So what now? We pray for the salvation of these people. We love them and we continue to share the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He died for us. He rose again. He is alive and he is returning as Sue told us so eloquently this morning and the children he is returning as the conquering king if any of you would like uh, our prayer letter by email 
do come and speak to me afterwards. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that uh, uh, your love is a love which is eternal, is unconditional, and irrevocable. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your life for us. Thank you, Lord, that you came to redeem us. And Lord, thank you that we who were once separated from you are forgiven. And now we stand with you as brothers and sisters in the Messiah. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.